1: Welcome to the Australian Finance Podcast, a podcast for people who want to learn more about their personal finances and get the most from their money. This series is hosted by Kate Campbell from How to Money and Owen Raskovich from Rask Finance.
0: The Australian Finance Podcast is provided for educational purposes only. The information is general in nature and does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives. What that means is the information does not apply to you specifically so consider getting the advice of a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information. Thanks to everyone who attended the first ever Australian Finance Podcast event. Kate and I were thrilled with the turnout in Melbourne. The following audio file is taken from the video of the event, which you can watch on the RASC YouTube channel. We apologize for the audio quality, but don't let that put you off because there are many important concepts you can take away from this very special episode. We'll return to our regular programming within the next few weeks thanks for listening.
1: Thank you everyone so much for joining us tonight and coming to our live podcast essentially. Um, thanks for taking time out of your evening instead of watching the cricket or going to Arbury uh, to come talk about money with us. And I'm so glad to have Owen and Susan and Nicole here to really break down the best ways to achieve your financial goals in twenty twenty and beyond. And I'm really glad that you're here and you're willing to talk about money with us because it's sadly a topic that we don't talk about with our friends and family, and we definitely should. So here we are to share our love of talking about money with you tonight.
0: Great. Thanks, Kate. Yeah, and thanks for everyone. The Australian Open is on tonight, so we do appreciate you taking the time out, especially during the week. Um, so. When you do public speaking, one of the things you're supposed to do is not start with the logistics. But I'm going to do it anyway. The toilets are just out beside the elevators. Men's at the end. Um, but I might just start with a few questions for you. This is a show of hands. Anyone here listen to the Australian Finance podcast? Good. That's almost everyone. That means there's opportunity for us yet, Kate. Um, anyone listen to the How To Money podcast with Kate? Fantastic. OK, so Kate runs another podcast. Um, I've also also got a couple of jokes to tell, and these come courtesy of Catherine. Uh, First one is, uh, you may not know this about me, but in a former life I was a banker, but I lost interest. That's the first one, so bear with me. Um, And and I've forgotten the other ones, actually, so don't worry about them, they're terrible. But um, thank you once again for joining us tonight. One of the things that Kate and I wanted to do was get more females involved. Um, We've had... Events in the past, I've held investors' events with the team, and we've had probably 98% men. And it's just fantastic to see so many women here tonight. I'd say it's maybe
2: 50-50. What do you reckon,
0: Susan? Did you got? What do you reckon? Yep. What? Wonderful. Yep. Give yourself a round of applause. Um, Kate and I were also talking. We we're just trying to estimate the audience and, and think about the room a bit and um, she said you'd be a 10 out of 10 actually like you're pretty good looking i was like maybe nine but you're definitely a 10 out of 10 so give yourselves a round of applause for that too there we go now that's getting the spirit of things we're going to start off with a few uh, presentations and then we'll have some q and a so please have the very difficult questions not for me um we have a kind of loose schedule here Uh, you'll hear from each of the expert panelists they each um, come up with different experience and skills and knowledge. So, please, um, as they go through their presentations, remember those questions and ask them specifically by name. But the first one, first come off the rank, is Kate. So, uh, I just want to say Kate and I started the podcast with only 10 episodes in mind, the first 10 episodes. And they're probably the most important episodes for anyone to listen to. So, if you haven't done that, please go back and do that. Uh, Kate. I remember we were at the pub at the other end of the CBD, and I was like, Kate, do you want to do a podcast? And she didn't think I was actually talking to her. And then a few weeks later, we did it. And what a success, success it's been maybe three or 400,000 downloads and this type of thing. So fantastic. Kate, thanks for doing this with me. Uh, have a wonderful time in Europe, and good luck with your presentation.
1: And the thing that Owen always forgets to mention is that this is per general information only, and yeah, yeah. I don't want to get caught out there because everything about finance ultimately is personal. It comes down to what works for you. So, everything that's spoken about tonight is general of nature based on our own facts or opinions, hopefully, some legitimate facts. Uh, so, please do your own research, seek multiple sources and opinions before making decisions, and speak to qual- other qualified professionals if you want more information. So, I wanted to kick off the event tonight talking a little bit about setting your 2020 financial goals before we get into the rest of the presentations and the Q&A. So, a lot of this seems will seem very basic because a lot of this we have been told a million times before from barefoot investor, from every finance book out there, set a budget, pay off debt, all of that sort of stuff. But... We often don't listen to it, and we need a reminder. And a lot of this stuff that I'm going to talk about is things that should have made common sense to me, but I didn't actually do myself. And I spent the first year working full-time, and I didn't actually save anything. My bank account was a bit like a sieve. Uh, So a few of these tips are what I've learned over the last few years while trying to save up to go overseas and not have an empty bank account. So the first thing to do when you're talking about setting financial goals, is start with why. And I'm borrowing from a well-written book here, but working out why you want to achieve that financial goal. Because if you just say, with your New Year's resolutions, I want to save $10,000 this year, and you don't know why you're doing it, you don't know how you're going to get there, then you're probably not going to achieve the result you want. So you need to work out, before you even set the goal, why do you want to achieve these certain things this year, and why do you want to focus on your finances? And that comes down to what are your priorities, because if you don't put your finances front and centre of mind when it comes to your focus for the year, you're not going to do much about it, and I think focusing on your finances is a form of self-care in itself, because if you look after your finances, then they start to look after you, and so many people get to retirement and don't have enough to live on. And then you can't look after yourself properly. So focusing on your finances every year will do well for you in the long run. So the first step is defining your goals and ensuring they're realistic and time-based. We get a lot of people sending questions into the podcast, wanting to know how they can make $10,000 in the next few weeks. And for most people, it's not realistic unless you're maybe a fly-in, fly-out miner. So you've got to make sure they're realistic for you because it can be very demotivating if you set a huge goal for yourself and it's just not realistic for your situation to achieve it and you can end up not really doing anything at all. And another important thing is making sure they're time-based. Saving $5,000 in 10 years is going to look very different to saving $5,000 in one year. Your strategy to getting to that goal will be different as well as your plan and how much you need to put away so you need to make sure whatever goal you set it might be longer than a year you put some time constraints around and think about what the end result looks like because if you you might set a goal that you want to save ten thousand dollars but you don't really know what the end result is going to look like for you and when it gets hard and when you have to turn down and invite for dinner because you have gone over your budget that month in that area you've got to remember why you're doing what you're doing and what you want to achieve. So when you're getting your goals together, you want to break them down into short-term, medium, and long-term goals because the strategy you're going to put together to get to those goals is going to look very different. Now, Owen and I usually talk about short-term goals as in really immediate things in the next year or so. You might be saving up for a computer, and you don't want to use a credit card to pay it. Uh, You might need a new phone, you want to go on a holiday, you want to take a short course, you want to take a few months off work. These sort of things you want to be saving for, we recommend as a rule in cash, because you want to access that money in the next year or two. You don't want to put it in the market at risk, and you want to focus on it very soon. Um, And then you've got um, intermediate goals. So your plan, that could be anywhere from five, maybe ten years, So that could be something longer, like paying off a large debt that you have, saving up for an overseas holiday, building an emergency fund. And that's the sort of goal that you might think about investing for. And then long-term goals. Yours might be buying a house in five to ten years, or saving to be financially independent, or trying to get your super on track for retirement. And then that's a completely different thinking again, because... The way you think for a short-term goal has got to be different from a long-term goal, and you've got to have a different plan to get there. So I'll talk about that next. But I also recommend only having three goals at once because if you're saving, trying to save for a holiday and a computer and a new car all at once, it's going to become very difficult. You're going to be splitting your money into so many different bank accounts, and you'll make very slow progress. So I usually recommend just focusing on one short-term, one medium-term and one long-term goal, and putting your effort into that. So coming up with an action plan. So once you've worked out your three goals, how are you going to achieve these goals? And you might decide, I want to say for a trip to D- Japan next year, I want $5,000. I'm going to put $2,000 aside from every paycheck each month into a separate bank account. And there I go. I've got the money. But when it comes to medium and long-term goals, you might come up with a completely different strategy. So you might start to think about investing in exchange-traded funds or shares, managed funds, property. And our speakers tonight are gonna talk about a little bit more about property and investing in other products as well. So that's something you might wanna start considering for your medium to longer-term goals. And then you've also gotta come up with a budget because if you haven't achieved the goal before, if you've always had, say, $5,000 on your New Year's resolutions and you've never achieved it, then just setting it again this year isn't going to change anything. So you need to make room in your life to achieve that goal. And whether that be, if you can't cut anything else out of your budget, then maybe it's doing a few extra shifts on Uber or starting a side hustle. We love to throw, throw that a word around on the podcast. But doing something a little bit different in your life to achieve that goal and whether that be the 50, 30, 20 budget that we talk about a bit um, or you're making it minuscule this much for transport or you just set up a payment, um, whatever you do, you've got to change something in your life to achieve your goals because if you just continue doing what you're doing, you're probably not going to get there. And then your secret weapon. So we often talk about the secret weapon of compound interest when it comes to investing, which is if you're trying to save for a, invest for a long-term goal, compound interest is your best friend. But your other secret weapon is automating your finances. And whether that be just if you're saving for that holiday, setting up a separate bank account, and every time that paycheck comes in, $200 moves straight from your the account where your salary comes into straight into a savings account. Take as much of the friction from saving and reaching your goals as possible. And you can do that for a lot of things. So if you're paying down debt, you can automate those payments. So you don't even see the money come in from your paycheck. It goes straight to where it's meant to be. Um, and then sometimes with investing, there are things you can't automate. You can't always automate going out and buying an ETF or a share. But you can automate the money going into a bank account ready to go. And you can put a calendar in, calendar in your diary so that every three months you buy that next ETF. And that's a method that Owen and I often discuss on the podcast, making an event every three months to use the money you've put aside to go and buy the next ETF or share, managed fund, or putting it aside for a house deposit. And the last thing is accountability. So if you set all these goals, and you don't review them, and you don't talk about them with anyone in your life, then it's going to be very hard to achieve. And I think a lot of the community that we've started to build, we talk about money a lot. Uh, Probably too much. um, But talking to someone in your life, whether it be a friend, family member, colleague, even someone you meet on a Facebook group, or someone you meet in the room tonight. Having someone to talk to about your goals, share ideas, because we learn so much by bouncing off each other i 've learned so much from Owen and Nicole and Susan that it 's really important to have someone to talk about, even send any of us questions and on Twitter and Instagram, most people are happy to answer questions about finances because if they 're passionate they 're usually happy to talk to you about it, and also setting up a regular review so in your calendar, setting up a quarterly financial meeting with yourself and maybe your accountability buddy but uh, Something that you can regularly review your goals, and if you're not achieving them, maybe adjusting something in your life to make sure you are. Or you might have to change the goal because it's not quite achievable at this stage. So making sure you're accountable to yourself and hopefully someone else, and regularly checking your goals. So there we go. That's a little bit about setting your financial goals for this year, and all of our speakers tonight are going to elaborate a lot more on different products and different ways to get to your goals, and sometimes what happens when goals fail. So, our next speaker is Susan, and she's going to talk a little bit about what's holding you back from achieving your financial goals. Well done.
3: Okay. Need some water first. You right? You right? You right. Right. right? Okay. Okay, welcome. Thank you. Um, if you haven't worked it out, She's my daughter. Okay. So, multi-generational investor, I sort of put that up there because the reason I'm here is because of my mother and the reason my mother taught me shares is because of her mother. So, I've come from a family of strong, independent financial women who believed you can still have husbands and wives and the whole bit, but be financially independent. Being married does not stop you doing that. So... She embedded that in me without me realising that I was slightly different and hopefully I've done the same thing. I've had two daughters and um, I hope they're not obsessed about money, but they will remain financially independent. And um, I think if we can do that for our daughters, we've achieved a lot in this day and age. So thank you very much for coming. I also run Argyle Consulting. Um, For my shame, I wasn't actually a director of a banker. Um, So I was director of Heritage Bank in Queensland. I'm also a director on an aged care. I have been various finance lecturers in various places. Um, Now I'm going to talk about what's stopping you what is stopping you from achieving those financial goals? They're in your head, they're on the whiteboard, they're stuck all over like Catherine, all over the bathroom, tiles, I mean, anywhere. So what is stopping you? Anyone? Knowledge? Knowledge? That's fair enough. Anyone else got a problem with knowledge? They don't know enough. Oh, no one? Oh, I'm impressed. You do. One person doesn't know enough. Good. Anything else stopping you? You don't have time? Anyone else a bit short of time? Two people. Wow, we're doing well here. What else What else is stopping you? Come on. Hmm? Belief. Believe in yourself. Good one. Yeah. And the other, the one I usually get is? I don't have enough money. I don't have enough money. Is that your problem? sometimes. Right. Okay. So we're going to talk about what we can do with those uh, simple problems. So following on from Kate, we use technology. Use technology. Now, I know that sounds really boring and basic, but I've been dealing with a woman in the last few months and she has not used technology. Now, what happens is that technology. So what am I talking about? You've all got your iPhones. You all know about apps. Do you have a an online, an app with a broker of some type. And not that I'm recommending any, but most of you may have heard of ComSec. You got ComSec? Right. So you have it online. Now, this this poor woman doesn't know a thing about ComSec. She's got a broker you have to ring up, you have to ask, they charge you a lot, they sell, they send you out a bit of paperwork. This broker also won't allow her to do dividend reinvestment. You heard of dividend reinvestments? Yep. And what's one of the benefits? You can argue either way about dividend reinvestments, but what is one of the benefits of dividend reinvestment if you don't have time or money? Sorry? It's automatic investing and it's compounding. See, oh, you girls are switched on. So if you don't have time, look, most of you are probably working full time. You might be looking after children or a spouse or aged parents or anything like that. I don't have time. So you just allow those dividend reinvestments to kick in. Now, sometimes those shares will kick in at the bottom of the market. Maybe they've just had a bad day, like a bank, or maybe they issued their dividend, what was it, yesterday when the market fell. Sometimes you'll get it at the bottom, and sometimes you'll get it at the top. But if you know about dollar cost averaging, some days you'll get those dividends at a good price. Some days, yes, you'll think, oh, I paid a lot for those. Over the long run, it won't matter. long run, if it's a decent share, it won't matter. So where possible, if you don't have lots of money, to pay big investments, just letting. And, you know, I had a girlfriend say, oh, but I'll only get one share. Yes, maybe this month you get one share, but in six months when they do another one, you'll get two and three, and then they start really accumulating. And if you leave those shares for 20 years, you will have done very well. So don't forget that. And if you've got a broker who says, no, they don't do that, I'd have serious words with them because I went, what are you doing with them? So um, think of that sort of technology. So use a broker, use one that works for you, online, full service, but something where you can see all your shares. Um, The other thing, we can talk a little bit about each. Um, The other thing, don't lose your shares. Yeah, silly thing to say, we're also working with people that lose your shares. You might have heard about um, we're doing the government's pushing, you know, looking for your lost super funds. You might have heard about that. Well, you can lose your super, so you can go online and check that you haven't left any at some other job. You can also lose your bank accounts. You move. And in the days before we all had everything on the phone, you might have an old bank account at a branch that is not connected, not on your little app. So if you think that's had to happen, I have found lots of money for people just because they forget about bank accounts. So perhaps the older you are, maybe more likely, who knows. The other thing you can lose are your shares. So if you get a float, you've invested in a float, and you look, you get bits of paper, and most of us probably don't read the bits of paper, do we? We toss them in the bin. Look and see on the corner of the share when it's issued whether it has an I and a shareholder number, an SRN security registered number, or an X, HIN. So please look. If you've never read a bit of paper from a share registry, please look. Now, if it's an I, just the letter I, that means it's individually registered to that company. So it will not turn up on your Comsec. It will not be there. So you can lose it. And then if you move house or you're renting, you know, you move on, your, your register doesn't know you've moved. Well, if you've got Comsec, you, you can go online or tell them or write them or whatever and say, look, I've moved here every 12 months because I am keep renting or whatever. You have to update your address. But if you've got an I, it goes to your old address and you will lose it. The register is not responsible of tracking those lost shares that is not their problem you have to keep track of them so in floats or you set up well I want to buy one for my children that I don't have but in 20 years time so in trust for something and believe people do this they buy shares for people children they haven't got and grandchildren like seriously and they yeah seriously it's a bit bizarre um, and they put them in all sorts of trusts and things like that. You can't add them to your ComSec because the ComSec, like mine, is in my name, Susan Campbell. I can't add other things in other people's names. ComSec won't do it. So you can lose those. So it sounds odd, but you do have to be really careful with that paperwork. So check that every share you've got is with your broker. And I wouldn't recommend more than two brokers like ANZ or whoever you're dealing with, you know, ComSec, whatever. Any more than two, you'll probably get very confused. Um, you might want to, just in case one, you know, crashes. Doesn't happen very often, and you want to do something. But keep it basically one and maybe a side. Um, the other thing, and this is totally a side issue, but I thought I pointed out because you're all young and looking for lost money. Medicare. Now, yeah. Medicare. Remember, Medicare, you put in forms, they send it to your bank account. Now, I was listening to the Minister of Health a few weeks ago, and he said there's all this money sitting in the government coffers waiting for people. And I thought it was waiting for us to claim. You know, you've got to send in and claim and we can't be bothered. No, it's actually people that have claimed, but again, they've put in the wrong bank account. And the money's sitting there waiting to go. And I thought, now give us our own story, I had a bank account used for 20 years, I thought Medicare had it, it's always had it, one bank account, all Medicare went in for the children, everything. And then I listened to this minister a few months ago and I went back and thought, yeah, I haven't seen any money in that bank account for a while. And I. You can go onto the you know website. It takes forever, but anyway, you, you sign up and we'll see the bank account you're registered. And I won't tell you who I'll blame for it, but it turned up our company account. My company account number had been put in. Now, the person who did it says, "Oh, it wasn't them," but you know. How else did it get there? I'm sure it wasn't Medicare just decided to steal my company account and put it in there. But anyway, that's all it was. You changed the account, and bang, overnight, all this money started hitting my account. So something that simple. So lost money, lost shares, lost Medicare payments. It's amazing. So automate. So, okay, what can we automate to make our life? If we can find some time, then we can spend it, to get some knowledge, and that's what I did, it was long-term, reading, reading, all that sort of thing. So, if you do have a share investment property, and this is another thing I thought everyone did, and then I discovered they don't, you might have a manager. Yes, they charge you, you know, it might be 7% or something, you can negotiate. If you do have a flat or whatever you've bought, and you've got a manager, property manager, do they pay all your bills? Now, I thought that was standard, but I found out they don't. And so you're going to someone's house and the paperwork's everywhere and they're trying to pay the rates and the water and, the, and some states' land tax and things on the property. If, you don't, if it's investment property, get your property manager to pay all that. Because if you don't, it's another thing you have to do in your busy life. And like happened with us had the insurance that my husband was paying directly and of course we moved house and the insurance notice wasn't online it came to the old address and we didn't know and of course something went wrong with the property and we rang up and they go oh no you're not insured right because we didn't have the property manager doing that i could have yelled at the property manager but i could only yell at my husband who you know of course it's not my fault anyway so I know it sounds really basic stuff, but if you've got property, get it managed and get them paying everything for you. And then you get this wonderful little tax statement at the end with your income and all the things going out. So you need all that. The other thing about property, and I know Nicole's going to talk to you, if you're in the mode of thinking about what to buy, think who you are. Now I've got another friend who wants to buy the unrenovated workman's cottage in Collingwood because she thinks they're cheap. I don't know. I don't have an opinion on that. But if you're working full-time and you've got children or you've got elderly parents, how are you going to renovate that cottage? She doesn't have a husband who's a handyman or anything like that. She's not a handyman. She's seen too many of those wonderful renovate shows and thinks she can just go to Bunnings, throw the paint around on the odd <laughs> day off, and she'll have made 100000 without even thinking. So for heaven's sakes, if that's in your mind, that's what you're gonna do. Think about have you got the time? Because they take up a lot of time. The other thing is when you're thinking property compared to shares, and I'm sure some of you are and you're thinking I'm talking about investments and things here. Um, oh, another friend said, Oh, I need to buy the property for my super because I'll get twenty thousand a year income. And I went, Okay, you know, three hundred and fifty thousand property. And I said, so what's your net return? Oh, 20000 she said. But I went, yeah, but what are the rates? What are the body corporate fees? What about management fees? What about um, any water rates and things? What about maintenance? What about, um, you know, the tenant actually not being there for a few weeks or months? Do you get a property? You're not, getting 20, you're not getting your 6% return as she was working on. She hadn't done those figures. She just saw the top line. So do your figures carefully. And real estate agents, there's so many books and, and Nicole's got it there. Don't just fall for the top line. I know it's basic, but people do. Okay, so automate what you can. So if you do have a property, get it managed properly. Get everything paid. All right, shares. I've mentioned already about shares. Get them... Onto a broker. Don't lose them. Don't lose your bank accounts. It sounds so much easy. And I just look at Catherine has opened so many bank accounts. It's frightening. It's frightening because online you can just open them and open them and open them. And you know, hopefully she doesn't have any money in, but she'll probably lose a few in the next five years. Um, so the other thing is, oh yeah, I've talked about DRPs and cash dividends. The other thing is, if you get a dividend statement, read it. Actually, read it. Right? Sorry, it sounds basic. Right? Friend, look, I'm getting dividends from South 32 and BHP, yay, yay, yay. And I go, no, you're not. The bottom of the dividend statement, in large black writing, it should have been red maybe, but it was black and yellow for South 32, warning you are not getting your dividends. I actually said that. Warning, you are not getting... And for years it's been saying, warning, you are not getting your dividends. She never read beside the first bit which said dividends, South 32. Do you know why she was not getting her dividends? She never gave them a bank account. Right? Now, in the old days, you know, before you won, you used to get cheques. Now, most, most companies, there might be one or two left, like BHP, don't send checks. You must have a bank account or DRP. But preferably, I give them both. Even if you do DRP, give them the bank account. They also ask for bank, because one day they might say, no, we have suspended our DRP and it's cash only. Now, companies can do that, and if you don't have a current bank account, for some reason, you've close that one down or forgotten about it because you moved house too many times, You either money goes to a bank account you don't know or you do not get it because they cannot send it to you. Again, simple stuff, but you're not getting your dividend. The other thing is, if it is giving you a cash dividend, for heaven's sake, check, it is actually turned up in that bank account. Again, simple stuff. So my friend goes, oh, no, I'm getting cash dividends. And I actually went through the bank account. Oh, yeah, Coles and da-da-da. And I said, oh, you're getting getting these dividends from, I don't know, News Corp or whoever. Um, Oh, I didn't know I owned these shares, she says. And apparently she was getting somebody else's dividends. Now, again, not supposed to happen. She didn't actually own the shares. But somehow, in the you know, wonderful world of, of bank account numbers, they were going to another. You know, She's getting dividends that didn't belong to her. But anyway, so actually, that, I know that's quite rare, but check that if you think you're getting cash dividends, I like to do, if you do Comsec or something, any of those, you set up a bank account with that, like Comsec, and that is the bank account you use for your shares. So all your dividends go to the same account. So it's really easy. If you get a notice, dividend, bang, you can see it in that account. I don't have to work out which one it's gone to, where they've gone. They're all in the same account. And then if I do get cash dividends, well, that's great. Then I can go and buy some. Now, you said you didn't have any money. Now, CONSEC, again, I'm not pushing it. I'm sure the others are like that. You can buy shares for under $1,000.00. You don't need $5,000, 10000 lumps. So I would recommend, not a share, but recommend you stick your finger in the water or your toe in the water. Give it a try. The only reason I'm standing here is because I tried when I was sort of 21 and started early and Catherine's starting early. You will make mistakes. But if you buy $500 or $1000, you can probably live if that goes down, but it will go up most times because the market goes up with the growth of the economy. I've had some shares that go all the way down, terrible, and then you hold them if you can and then they go up, they rejig, they do all, and I've also had shares that have died, like seriously dead, right, that happens too. But you try not to have too much money. But if you're looking at those long-term stable, I doubt BHP will ever die. It will go down, but will it die? So you want to mix your shares with things that are very, you know, pretty guaranteed to live as long as you. And then, of course, you want to stick your finger in and try some of those more exciting shares that you might have heard about. Now, when is a good time to buy? I don't know. If you're pessimistic, it's never a good time to buy. The market's too high, the market's too low, the market's too volatile, so you'll never buy. If the share price is going up, oh, I don't want to buy it because I've missed the bottom, because it's going up. That's what people said about CSL and Cochlear when they are $40 and $50, dollars, and where are they now, Two and $300? Not every share does that. So you've got to work out... What is your mental attitude? Do I buy when it goes up or do I buy when it's going down? <gasps> but it's going down and I'm buying it when it's falling. Does that mean the share's no good anymore? Does that mean I'm not going to pick the bottom? No, you won't pick the bottom. I never know when the bottom is. So do you like buying it going down? Some people only like buying shares as they go up. Some people like buying shares when they go down. I'm a bit of a go-down person. The other thing, use Orders. Anyone use orders? You leave them? Yeah. Good. Use orders. Yesterday. Market tanked yesterday. Great time to pick something up. You can put really low orders on. And they don't cost you anything. If you never get the share, well, that's fine too. But you can put low orders on. And some days, for whatever reason, I don't know, the share just goes down. And then, oh. Next day, they everyone goes. Oh, we oversold that, and it goes up again. So orders are really good thing. You telling me I'm talking too long, aren't you? Yes, yeah, sorry. I usually talk for hours and days and all that sort of thing. All right. So use, using anyway. We'll. Um, oh, my other favourite topic. I've got to talk about this because this is your other lifesaver. You must look after this superannuation. I know, boring, boring, boring. But it's your money. It is not the government's money. It's not the company's money. It is your money. You are giving bits of your salary every month. Now, for heaven's sakes, know where your super goes. Do you all know where your super money is going? Yeah. Good. Do you know what sort of it is performing? How it's performing? Well, this front row is really good on it. A lot of people don't. And they're not very good at reporting either super. They have a lot. Anyway, you've got to do it. Know where it is. Know who's looking after it. You know which company is doing it, right? Who runs it? Who's controlling it? Who owns it? Is your money? How much are they charging? You've all heard about fees and things. You know, are they charging something reasonable or not? Um, You know, I expect them to charge something. They're doing a good if they're doing a good job. How do you check it now? A lot of going online, and you can look up online and do things. Um, And is it growing for you? Is it growing? Be wary of going into balance funds. You know how that performed. You want to be, you know. So we're talking about lifestyle super, more aggressive when you're younger, and then you know, thing. So look at your choices. Most of you will have choices, of course. I think we all have choices. That's compulsory, but know about it. It is your money. Do not let anyone else play with it. If it's not going in, you should have a right to know. I know someone who's their super fund goes off. You know. And they're, quarterly. It was going off to the firm. It got rejected. So the company said we couldn't pay your super. Now to me that's a serious alarm bell. Like, What's going on? Why is it being rejected? So hopefully that doesn't happen to any of you, but make sure you track your super. Do not just assume it's all working like it should. It's your money. Know where it is. Know where it's going. And do you want me to finish? Right. Okay. I will answer questions later. Bye.
0: Thank you so much, Susan. Fantastic. Our next presenter is Nicole Haddo. Hello. Hello. Nicole is a, uh, well, I'm going to call you a property expert now.
2: I think that's excessive, but let's go with that.
0: (laughs) Just before I let you go, I've got one joke. Uh, I just Googled it. So... um, you should always lend money to a pessimist because they never expect it back. That's all I got. <laughs> Without further ado, here's, here's Nicole.
2: Thanks, <laughs> Um Susan, that was awesome. I just learnt so much. Some of you might have watched me being on my phone. I wasn't being rude. I was taking notes. Um, that, was, that was excellent. I am here to talk to you about property tonight, um, with the caveat being property was my first goal for so many personal reasons. Um, It was really important to me to know that I at least had a roof over my head, if nothing else. I always say, and you may disagree with this, Susan, that you can't sleep in chairs. Um, I wanted to know that I had my own home for security. Um, as it stands, I don't live in that home, it's an investment property, um, but should I need to, uh, I have a home that I can go back to. Anyway, um, this is the cover of my book, quick plug, uh, it came out last year, it's called Smashed Avocado, as you can see, you can thank my ex-boyfriend for that fabulous name, um, it's worked out really well. Uh, <laughs> the relationship, not so much. i um, uh, I wrote a book called Smashed Avocado because I believed it was really... How do I click? Where do I click? Ah. (laughs) Um, Oh, that's me. (laughs) I always forget that that's in there. Um, Where was I? Oh, so I was a... (laughs) a, um, I'm jumping around a little bit, but I was writing the investment property column Uh, for the financial review for a little while and I found that the top end of the market was disproportionately serviced. And I thought it was really important to talk to young people um, and say that you actually can have smashed avocado and buy property too, you just can't have everything. Um, So this is me. About 10 years ago on a Tuesday night, that sort of behaviour wasn't unusual. Um, Working as a journalist, I was invited to a lot of fancy events where there was free champagne and canapes. The problem with free champagne is then you go out for more champagne that you pay for and then you you get a taxi home. Um, So I was not living my best uh, financial life. Uh, I racked up a lot of debt Pretty much just in my career, just just living work wise, going out after work, hanging out with friends, going to the pub on Friday night, um, doing what most millennials do, travelling, um, and really not thinking about my finances at all. I'm super envious of Kate. Um, I did not have the support of someone like Susan. Not that my mum's not fantastic, but she she was like, "Yeah, you'll work it out." Um, Uh, So anyway, the result was me crying in the middle of a restaurant on my 30th birthday. It wasn't ideal. Um, I had just moved home with my mum and dad because I'd spent a year, uh, sorry, a decade uh, travelling, living, doing this, um, realising that I had $11,000 of credit card debt and nothing behind me. So I decided to set some goals um, and the, the first goal was to do a power save. Now... This kind of goes against a lot of what um, Kate's just told you. Um, but when you f- when you turn 30, you really feel like you're running out of time. So uh, <laughs> also, I was living with my mum and dad, so there was a finite deadline. This could not go on forever for the sake of our relationships. Um, I set myself a target of saving between twenty five and $30,000 in, in one year, um, which was a massive thing to do. I gave up pretty much everything. Um So, the first questions I asked around that time when I moved home, um, or just after, because that was around the time that um, Bernard Salt wrote that really fun column saying that millennials should just give up smashed avocado if they wanted to buy houses, um, was that smashed avocado was not the problem. It was everything else that I was doing. It was going out for drinks. It was taxis. It was clothes. It was hair. It was makeup. It was uh, travel. It was not planning my life properly um the question why is property so expensive is is funny to me in hindsight now because had i not been so stupid in my 20s i would have entered the market at a much uh, a much better time and property is expensive when you reach your 30s and 40s if you don't own your home because somehow you've got to work out how you're going to pay off a mortgage in 30 years and then the challenge becomes, can I rely on equity? Can I rely on capital growth? What can I do to, to get around to entering the market so late? So it's not about the property being expensive. It's about the period of time that you've got to work with. Um, and millennials, to be honest with you, do face a challenge. I don't want to be saying, hey, it's so easy. We should have all just entered the market when we were 22. Everything would be fine. That's not the case at all. We've got hex debt. We've got uh, you know, the cost of living. We genuinely do have a lot of challenges. Um, the thing that I say to a lot of people when they say to me, I don't need a house. I'm just going to rent. Um, I say, that's cool. What are you going to do when you're 79 and your landlord kicks you out of your property? This is really, really stressful. Um, I, I, think, I, think, I think a lot of people aren't thinking long-term about this. Um, there are pros and cons to home ownership from a financial perspective, of course. I'm talking about security and knowing that you're going to be okay in your old age. Do have a think about it. Think about what works for you. Um, so when I was living with my mum and dad, I had a lot of time to do my property research. Um, it was either do my property research or throw myself off a cliff. Um, so it worked out really well for me that I that I had the uh, the time to, to to sit down and 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 talk to a lot of people as well. I think when we talk about getting financial advice, something that we always forget is if you know someone who's entered the property market, on some level, they are an expert. Talk to as many people as you can. If I'm not sure how many of you. How many of you here tonight are, are working towards buying a home? Yeah, quite a few of you. Um, talk to people. Talk to your parents. Talk to your friends. Talk to your boss. Find out what they did. Um, my first thing that I needed to do was reset my expectations. So I wanted to buy a single-fronted Victorian cottage in Richmond. Renovated, obviously. I wasn't renovating. Um, That didn't happen. I worked out that with $25,000 to $30,000, I could actually buy an entry-level investment within a 12-month period. Now, most people don't realise you can do that, and I'm probably going to say something that will be controversial as far as the rest of the panel is concerned. I didn't have a 20% deposit because it was more important to me to enter the market than to save my 20% deposit. I use lender's mortgage insurance People will say, Lenders Mortgage Insurance, waste of money. I say, not if you use it properly. So, in my case, my Lenders Mortgage Insurance was going to be about $70,000. Uh, sorry, 70000 that would be ridiculous. $7,000. That $7,000 is built in the cost, into the cost of the lifetime of your loan. It's actually a tiny, tiny portion of the amount that you're going to spend each month. Had I waited 12 months to get that 20%, my property would have been worth about 60000 more. So my property went up in value of about $60,000 in the first one to two years, which I was very, very lucky to have that experience. So my question is, once you've done your research, can you look at how you can get into the market sooner? And there's always risk, but do you have the confidence to know that you're buying in a growing area, that the LMI is going to quickly be cancelled out by the capital growth? Something to think about. Um, there are some questions around what you can actually afford. So I knew that... This is my apartment, by the way. I don't live there anymore. <laughs> it's pretty basic. Um, but I loved it. Um, you still need to work out whether you can pay the mortgage, whether you can pay the rates, whether you can pay the body corporate. There are a lot of challenges that come f- came for me with that first year of home, home ownership. So doing all the numbers, not just the mortgage, the bills your food, your social life, if you plan to have one. Uh, um, You need need to factor all of those things in because it's really, really difficult in that first year. You can look at that mortgage number and go, ''Oh, I can afford a two-bedroom apartment.'' Can you afford to eat after you've paid your mortgage? That's the question. Um, Buying in the right location is really, really important. So part of my resetting expectations was about looking in a high-growth area. So I bought in a suburb called Mordialik, about 25 kilometres out of the CBD, not far from the beach, uh, 70s block, it's not that cool, there's only six of them, um, but very unusual property type in that street. It's the only block of units in the street. Um, Morty was flying under the radar at that time. Um, the average property price in Morty uh, for a two-bedroom apartment, which is what I've got, is now circa 450 up to 500 depending on the quality of your property. I paid 312 So when you do your research and you know what the market's doing and you're buying in an area that might not be too sexy, um, but probably is on the up because it's got a beach and parks and good schools, it's better to buy in a location for growth if if you're trying to get equity, which I'll get to shortly. Um, The first year, I actually get really emotional when I talk about the first year, because it was really hard. Um, I moved into that apartment by myself. Um, I lived alone. I had not planned for anything other than the mortgage, so when I when it came time to eat, uh, <laughs> that was rough, um, I didn't understand the owner's corporation. So I just wanted to get a rusty clothesline replaced, and it took me months. I didn't understand the finances of that owner's corporation, and it took me quite a few years to get my head around that. I really was flying blind, um... And it's really important to read those numbers, understand the finances of the building, understand what you can and can't do to the property if you plan to buy an apartment. Um, My finances got so tight in that first year that I had to take a second job. Um, It turned out to be a blessing because that job was writing about property for the financial review. But the challenge was I was doing an already very full-on job and taking a second job on top of that. Um, I've put the word acceptance at the bottom because after going through all of those things, I finally was okay with the situation. I knew that that first year was going to be really difficult. Um, You don't have to make it that difficult. Uh, Don't be me. (laughs) Do your research. Be in a better financial position when you enter the property market. The reason I talk about this is because I want you to learn from my mistakes. Uh, what I ended up doing was finally getting my Richmond single-fronted Victorian. Yeah, I did. Uh, I rent it, and <laughs> I learned a lot through that process as well because I had to work out whether I was going to um, whether I was going to move into the property first or list my property. What else did I need? I needed a bond for the new property. I needed the first month's rent. I needed to cover the cost of my property uh, in the event that the tenant didn't move in straight away. I worked out that I was going to need about five, six, maybe $7,000 to be safe to to make this leap. So if you're interested in the concept of rent vesting, that is living in your property or maybe not living in your property at all and then uh, turning it into an investment property, you need to think about the cost of that leap. Becoming a landlord is also really interesting. I do have my property managed. I didn't know that they can pay the bills. I'm calling them tomorrow. They did not pay my bills. Um, then I had to return to share housing uh, to, to pay for that nice little place in uh, in Richmond. Um, but the upside is I am negative gearing my investment property. Controversial, I know. Um, but if you're in a position to do so, um, there are a number of tax benefits of having an investment property as opposed to being an owner-occupier. I'm going to brush over that because I know we're kind of running out of time. Um, at this point, I started to get my life back. So it was really hard for that first twelve months, but it did get easier. And the, what I would say to you is, if you are looking at entering that property into entering the property market, the saving process and the first year or so can be really difficult, but it does get easier. Um, Building your portfolio. So what my plan is, uh, is to use equity to take my next step. So I'm starting to get to a point where I can do that. Um, essentially, because I bought in the right place at the right time, I can use the value of my property to borrow to purchase my next property. So Alec was never going to be my one and only, and my hope is that at some point I can use that equity to get into a home that I actually want to live in. Um, How long it takes depends on a couple of things. Building equity um, can be really difficult. If you buy a fixer-upper and happen to add a quarter of a million dollars worth of value to it pretty fast, you're in a pretty good spot. Uh, If you are relying on it just going up in value, as I am, it might take a while. So you're going to need to do your research into how long it's going to take. Relying on equity is absolutely not the answer, I should say. There there are absolutely risks to doing this. If the market bottoms out, I can't use my equity. Um, But it can be a powerful tool if you are looking to build a portfolio. Um, And then you also have to think about managing the costs of more than one property. So should I hold on to Mordiala and buy my second property? I then have two sets of rates um, and all of the running costs that come with two homes. Um, just a couple of people that I wanted to introduce you to before I wrap up. Um, when I wrote Smash Davo, it was really important not only to share my story because everyone, everyone's journey is different. Um, so I interviewed some amazing young people who found clever ways to get into the market when it feels really impossible. Uh, this is Lucy and Nathan. Um, they've got this gorgeous little place down in Locke in Gippsland. Um, they moved it... Uh, from a property in Canterbury, put it on a truck and took it to Gippsland. Um, So they had the land and they paid about $100,000 for the house. Um, There's a company called Moving Views, there's a bunch of companies that does this where you can buy properties that are going to be demolished and move them to cheaper land. So uh, they're working really hard while they're young and that's what's important to them. Um, They've just had a baby and you can see Bub, there. Um, they're still finishing the Renault, but they're um, they're super super happy with what they're achieving, um, and and very creative when they thought about how they were going to enter the market. Um, another creative couple, Jacob and Brad. They bought this unbelievable barn. Um, it's in Heathcote, about ninety minutes out of Melbourne, just near Bendigo. Uh, that barn, when they bought it, was completely uninhabitable. It had a dirt floor. It had exposed insulation. Uh, They did about 40 50k reno. Um, So they paid about 220 for the property. It's on, I think, five hectares. Um, And yeah, 220 for the property, 40 50k renovation. So for $270,000, they've got this renovated barn and they've got it on Airbnb for $200 a night. Uh, And it's booked out all the time. I tried to book it over Christmas, couldn't do it. Uh, It is unbelievable. Uh, Having said that, there are regional considerations. Obviously, um, this year in particular has really shone a spotlight on the challenges that people face when they buy regionally. Um, I I would certainly say still consider regional. It's just more important than ever to do your research. Um, The cost of insurance for bushfire, flood, uh, and all of that sort of thing is going up. In some cases, it's difficult to get. Uh, So it's never been more important to do your research, but regional may be a very you know, clever way to enter the market if, if that's what you're looking to do. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Nicole. Yes, please. Uh, I find Nicole's story to be uh, inspirational because I'm not a homeowner, I'm going to admit that, but um, I think just listening to her, it kind of takes away the, the overwhelming feeling that most people who are saving for a property uh, feel. And that's her book, so plug for her. I think she might be working on something else exciting. Um, You can find Nicole on Instagram, and we'll send that out tomorrow. So I had no idea what I was going to talk about. In fact, I decided yesterday. Um, And I thought I'd talk about something that's really topical, financial independence, and you'll notice that I've left out the RE on financial independence retire early. I saw a few people in the crowd um, have their phones out or they have a notepad or something, if that's... If you want to remember things from my slides, that's probably what you want to do because I'm going to be a bit quicker than normal. Um, Just as a show of hands, I thought I'd ask a question. I asked you if you listen to the podcast, raise your hand if you've made a change to your financial situation based on what you've heard. Okay, that's great. So quite a few, I would say, just for those at the front, maybe 80 or 90% put their hand up for listening to the podcast and only maybe 20% said they've actually done something on the back of it. Uh, We find that's the case with books. If you write a book, unfortunately, um, 20% is probably what you can assume um, people will put into practice. So you know who I am. Um, That's some stuff about me, but I just never take myself too seriously. That's the only one you need to worry about. Um, So what is financial independence? Just as a show of hands again, anyone heard of FIRE? Great. Most of the room say 80% again. So financial independence, it has this kind of connotation that It's for hippies. It's for people who just eat lettuce leaves and white rice. It's for people who blog and they don't live a life. They're misers, as we might say. But that is totally not the case. And I'm about to tell you some ways to overcome that stigma and probably get on a track towards your own financial independence. So, as you know, financial independence stands for uh, fire stands for financial independence, retire early. And but the basic idea is like this is a bit of a joke here, a bit of a contradiction, but people say, you know, when I get to sixty seven, they're kinda of holding out for like the next best thing. The anticipation of, you know, retiring one day. Unfortunately for most of us in the room, and we're all pretty young I'd say as wonderful as super is, most of us think that we probably won't retire until seventy, maybe even older. By the time we get there, and by the time the government gets its little hands on the uh, the, sh- the honey pot, it's probably going to be pushed further out. So, fire stands for this is this is, a, this is Kate's words. Um, this is what it's all about. So, it's about increasing your savings rate, consuming less, pursuing happiness, and having the financial freedom and flexibility to choose if, how, and when you work. So, I think. <laughs> There's a few myths when it comes to fire, and the first one I want to say is, most people have probably heard this, you can't live in the moment if you're saving. I have friends of mine who know that I'm a finance person, and when I try and just entertain the conversation with them about saving more, like one of them makes maybe 150 grand a year, works his ass off. He said to me when we were 21, I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30. He's in so much debt, it's incredible. Like it is absolutely unbelievable. And I think my wife down front here, Sarah, probably knows who I'm talking about. It is actually incredible. And the reason is he just doesn't open his mind up to this type of thing. You've probably heard this before. And particularly when it's something like fire, people think, why would I want to do that? I deny myself now for a a sacrifice for the future. But this is actually not the case. So one thing that we've been doing, and I'm pointing to my partner down the front here, one thing we've been doing lately is... Uh, This kind of like positive psychology trick that you can trick yourself into thinking better thoughts. So every morning when we get up, and if you're single, you could do this with a friend or whatever, you might have a a group that you can talk to someone with. We have to list one thing that we're grateful for. So it might be, you know, I'm grateful that I don't have a boss looking over my shoulder every day. And then you turn one negative into a positive. So you know something's coming up, you maybe don't like it. Like I hate, I'm, I'm so fearful of speaking in public, but I'm so grateful that I can be up here. So I've turned that negative into a positive. And I promise you four things. If you do this for one week, firstly, you'll be on the lookout for positive things. Secondly, this negativity will flow on into more positive thoughts. Thirdly, you'll avoid negative people. If we are the average of the five people closest to us, you'll begin to gravitate towards those who are more positive. And the fourth thing, and how this ties into financial independence, you'll begin to notice that the things that you're grateful for have very little to do with money. So how much do you need to be happy? Daniel Kahneman and and Deaton, there's a study online, it's a bit controversial, but they say after $75,000 per year, your emotional well-being is less likely to increase. So there are other studies which say that you need $200,000 or something like that. Good for you if you're making that sort of money. But unfortunately for you, or maybe fortunately, I don't know, you're not going to be any happier because you make so much more money. And that's something that people forget. You know, they think, again, hanging out for what's next. $75,000, I mean, it's pretty... It is, if you're in a single income household, it can get quite tough to save, but you can do it. Another way to put this is, and this is probably something that you've heard before, is past a certain level of income, what you need is just what sits below your ego. One of the most powerful ways to increase your savings isn't to raise your income, but your humility. And you would have heard me say before if you listened to the podcast that Charlie Munger says, um, envy is the only one of the seven deadly sins that you can forget about because you get no pleasure from it. And often we benchmark ourselves to other people. We say, you know, well, that person saved this much. They've got this house in Richmond. You know, look at them. That's amazing. I can't do that. So that negative psychology comes back. Fire myth number two, social pressure. And obviously we've got a bit of a couch potato here. Um, he's left a bit on his shirt. And he says, my social, my social life would be ruined if I started saving money or you know, pursuing fire or trying to think about retirement. And it is pretty painful, right? Like you have to make decisions. So people think that by pursuing fire or financial independence or just saving in general that it's really going to cost us. It's really going to cost us. Keep in mind that positive psychology trick I told you earlier on. Really, it's quite the opposite. Just going to pause for a second. Has anyone downloaded this app? Six, seven, eight people, nine people? It's brilliant. If you eat out, or if you eat it in general, um, you should probably download this app. It's free. It's Australian. I it, uh, can get you 50% off your next um, meal. And it's, uh, Honestly, it's free. It's amazing. Um, so, financial... Achieving financial independence is not so much about just forcing yourself to sacrifice. In fact, it's just about rearranging your priorities. Kate talked about this earlier on. Rearranging what's important to you. You know, we've all heard the jar analogy, you put the big things in first and all the little things falling around, and that's how you maximise the space that you have inside. The second thing is consuming consciously, I'll show you what I mean. So you probably heard me reference this study before, but there was a study done that send people off in a BMW to drive in the hills with a friend, and then they came back and they asked them, what did you get the most pleasure from? And what the, the researchers found was that it's actually not the BMW and the shiny car and the convertible that, that get the pleasure from, it's actually the scenery and the people that they're with. You know, we have this misconception that having a material object like this this social proof, this gives us status. Because going back, you know, to the Neanderthal days, we would think we would be in a pack and that would be the way to feel safe. And if we stood out in the pack, we were strong. You know, all these things were really, I guess, endearing to your character, but they're not so today. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Um, so how much do I need to retire? It's kind of the question which leads on to the back end of um, f- financial independence, retire early. I've got a few um, figures here. So $10.23. You'd probably need a little bit more than that. you know, it's a bit of a stretch. I'll let you read that. So where did the idea of retirement come from? And in 1881, she's gone, uh, a German by the name of, I'm going to say, Otto von Bismarck, came up with this idea. He was a, a notable figure, and he had to make a decision because he had youth unemployment at 20%. Right, so there was no jobs for the young people. So his idea was... We'll just kick out the old people and then put the young people in the jobs. So what he did is he went to all the 65-year-olds and he said, we'll give you some cash if you retire, knowing full well that the average life expectancy was 67. So two years, right? Fast forward to today, and it's a little bit different. We live longer than 65. But that's where the Western world has got this idea from. According to this super body, a comfortable lifestyle, and I'll define that as, well, what they define it as is, one kitchen renovation every 20 years, so I don't know how that plays into your definition of comfortable lifestyle, but $61,786 per year for a couple. At a 4% withdrawal rate, that's around $1.5 million that you need. Does anyone know? You guys would have heard the 4% rule. I'll get to that in a moment, but it's effectively that you can draw 4% out of your investments and that gives you the income. So these are some of, the, some of the, I guess, roadblocks we put in front of ourselves when we consider saving and investing for the long run. Do I have enough? Is it too late for me? Do I know enough? We've talked about this. Susan talked about this, and it was brilliant. You know, these are kind of, these are kind of questions and the doubts, the self-doubt that we have. And this comes back to social pressure again. But the one thing that's great about having someone like Nicole up here is seeing others do it has been proven that it takes away a lot of that self-doubt and it gives you confidence. So that's why the FIRE community is actually a community. It's why you can go onto blogs and there'll be hundreds of people who comment on posts. it will be why there are Facebook groups you can join for free and you can learn from them. It's because there is actually safety in numbers and it's actually a, an opportunity for you to learn. So there's countless groups. We've actually done an episode on FIRE. Kate included probably 20 references to different blogs that you can, you can go and look up yourself. One thing Kate also talked about is goal setting. Now, I'm a bit, I guess I go against the grain a bit here. I've never really achieved a financial goal. I'm gonna be real. They are motivating, I'll give you that, but I've never really achieved one. I've found when I've studied successful people, what they have in common is they have these habits and they're typically lifestyle habits that inform their budget. So I can give you a budget, and I, in fact I've done that if you'd go into the show notes, and we've given you one at 50, 30, 20. But the problem that people have is they try and rearrange their life to fit their budget, when really we should be rearranging what's important to us, and then the budget will follow suit. And so I don't tend to think about goals because they're easily broken, and the one reason that they're broken, and it's I'm sorry for everyone down the back here, but I've, I've drawn the distinction between goals and habits. Think of habits as mini goals. So goals that you might achieve every 24 hours, every two days, once a week. Right? Habits compound viciously over a long period of time, and they're far harder to break. Let me give you an example of what a habit might be. A habit might be withdrawing $50 every week from your bank account and putting it in cash in a jar. Now people will be like, oh, why do you do that? Well, the actual act of taking the money out, seeing it in front of you. Is very powerful. If I laid a pineapple down in front of you, a $50 note, or I said you can save 50 bucks, you're going to see that money and you're going to be like, I want that. I want to keep that. And so that's a power, powerful visualization trick that you can use on yourself and you can make habits like this. This is one from Sophie down the front here. So there's actually an app that lets you do this. So you can download this app again for free. It even says open source. If you're a developer, you can contribute to it. Um, this app will help you set a habit and then remind you to do it, or you can track to see which days you actually completed it and which days you did not. Very powerful. This comes from a fund manager that I, well, he referenced someone else, but the chains of habit are too late to be felt until they're heavy to be broken. I've repeated that so many times. You're probably like, who is this guy? Get an original idea. Um, but that's true, right? You can, they're very hard to break habits, but you can form them. And once you do, they're very powerful. So getting to fire ASAP, uh, start now, it's all about your savings rate, earn more, spend less. Returns matter, I'll get to that, time to compound. This comes from an interview I did with Hamish Douglas. If anyone knows who he is, just some guy that's made a billion dollars. So the money that money makes, makes more money. I'll leave it at that. Returns matter, big time, so hands up here who's got maybe what they think is extra money sitting in cash or term deposit. Yep, maybe 50% of the room. Wonderful. Who's actually invested here? Show of hands. Okay, 75, 80%. Wonderful. Okay, the rule of 4% assumes a 7% return because 3% in the olden times is what you assume for inflation. We still assume that today, but it's not actually happening right now, although it could come back. So we'd hope to get 7% returns. Now... The reason why we want to increase our returns, so we want to invest and not just keep it in shares, uh, in cash and put it into shares or property or something like that, is because it's quicker to get to the point that we want to get to. If we want financial independence, if we want $2 million, you have to save $2,000 a month at 15% returns, this is obviously just a hypothetical number, after tax, and it'll take just 19 years. So if you want to retire in 19 years, however old you are, add maybe 20 years on, that's what you need to do. The problem with this is some people can do that, not many people can do this and you're definitely not going to get it in a bank account I can. that's probably the one guarantee I can give you in finance also if you put money at risk and you invest you also need less to retire on so some people try to get to financial independence with $500,000 and they might assume that they're going to make 5% returns on their money it's $25,000 a year, I don't know what you're doing on $25,000 but Maybe you can survive on that. Maybe you can't, especially if it's taxed. Fifteen percent of one million dollars is one hundred and fifty thousand. You notice that's oh, a bit too close. You notice that's quite different to if you earned seven percent, or six percent, or four percent on a million dollars. We'll go this way. So I'm just going to bring this home now with some actual studies. So I'll just forecast. So this is from Vanguard. Everyone knows who Vanguard is—the big fund manager, ETF provider, whatever. I've gone too too far. So, Vanguard estimates the returns over the next 10 years to be between 0.5 and 1.5% over the next 10 years. So, that's 1.5% a year at most. That's what they say, 0.5% at worst. After tax, yeah, you're not making a lot of money. Now, I just want you to think about that because if you've got excess money that needs to be invested or you're holding off, imagine my original figure of compounding at 15% versus compounding at 0.5 or 1%. For shares, and by the way, these are never right. i just throw them up here for context. For shares, which is another word for the equity market, um, they believe Australian shares will return between 4 and 6%. International shares, 45 to 6.5% per year. Again, not 15%. But still, you've got to remember, as Susan said, dollar cost averaging. Sometimes it will be, the, the returns will likely be lower. Sometimes when the market falls, the returns will likely be higher. The one thing about investing in risky things like shares and property, is that at exactly the time when it feels most scary is exactly the time when the returns are typically highest, or the potential returns. So you've got to master your own psychology before you even consider doing this type of thing. Ultimately, what this means is, if you, say, have an aggressive investment, say you have 80% invested in shares or property and that type of thing, and 20% in cash or term deposits, You're going to be pushing towards the lower end of this range, according to Vanguard. Now, that's pretty dark because 5% doesn't sound great, whatever. Um, On the upside, I guess 5% is 500% more than 1%, so that's a good thing. Compounded at 6%, $2,000 a month, invested, turns into $1.9 in 30 years. I've excluded tax, for simplicity, but you get the idea. That's the first thing. So if you want to retire early, maybe you can't rely on super because you might have to be 70 by the time you access it. Your employer is already adding 10% of your wage to super. Find out where it's going. Make sure it's being invested the way that suits you. Third one is it's extremely easy to get started investing. Maybe I won't name a broker, but Susan did. (laughs) No, she did. Um, I'm happy to say it. Comsec is... Um, the largest broker in Australia, but there are plenty of others. ETFs are very easy to get started in. I've said that, you probably know that. Um, we've done an episode on it. So your next steps. I've just got three to break it down. Three is a good number. Start talking to your par- partner about investing. See you in the next week if you can play that positive psychology trick on your partner. See what they they're grateful for. Take note of what they are or aren't excited about what's a negative that they can turn into a positive. Listen to a finance podcast, read, or take one of our courses. 15 minutes per day is all you need to start learning and to get a hold of your finances. It's really that easy. For such an important thing, finances and health are the two things that I rank that everyone should know at least something about. You know, this is all it takes. And before tomorrow, if you haven't already done so, open a brokerage account. You don't need money to do it. It's, most of them are free to open. You can do it online, and subscribe to three other podcasts or newsletters. For those who don't know any, um, Equity Mates podcast. We have um, the Motley Fool podcast. What's some other Australians? How to Money. She's on the Money. Australian Investors podcast from us. So many others, and I'm going to end it on one story. So some people have heard of Warren Buffett. I'm guessing by 30 years of age, Warren Buffett had become a millionaire by starting a bunch of small businesses. He had coin lotteries, pinballs and that type of stuff. Eventually, he began to save and invest larger sums of money. By 50, his personal worth stood at $300 million. A lot of scratch, right? And if you put it in today's dollars, it's probably over 500. Today, he's worth $87 billion. It's a B, not an M. Meaning that he made 99% of his money after he turned 50. I've used this before, but it's not because he worked 99% harder. It's not because he worked 99% longer. It's because the money that money makes makes more money. And if you get started today, you can start to feel that power. It might take five years, but it works. So I said here, Buffett's first million was the hardest. But after that, he realised that the money that money makes makes more money. I'm just going to repeat that one more time. Don't delay. Please get started today.